We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths, content from our lovely island of Tasmania. The show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edge.org.au for more info. My name is Kate Johnson and today we'll be joined by a number of guests who will be reading us their science-themed poems and telling us a bit about themselves as well as the poems they have written. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa and the Pakana people. We are recording on Luchawita, and I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which our poets wrote and based their poems, and the land on which you are listening. I would also like to acknowledge the deep and continued history of oral tradition, stories, poetry, art and dance in Indigenous cultures. I'd also like to honour First Nations peoples as the first scientists of this land, practising and passing on scientific knowledge for generations. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to Elders past and present. Okay, uh... My name is Pip Beale. My poem is about light and perception of light. The earth spins on its axis and shows a new face to the sun's light. Indiscriminately, the sun sending its electromagnetic radiation into the universe illuminates this face with all its wrinkles to see which nocturnal beings have signed their name. To read the etchings of this past night on this new day. Which litter born, which leaf consumed? Which cactus flower the day before a bud of soapy promise, now complete in its midnight liaison? A moth passes love notes to its neighbour. Coral reef fish sing a prismatic dawn chorus in spectral radiance. Giant clams rimmed with unblinking eyes yawn towards the light so their algal guests might bask. Below... Leagues of tumbling waves and coursing flows wipe clean the reds so that little fish no longer see them. In this dark place, predators make their own crimson searchlights in draconian invisibilia. To their prey, these deep-sea dragons are the stuff of myth, unseen and unreal until the moment of death in dark embrace. Like those silvery small fry... Our apparitions of the world are formed from what reflections and subtractions of light our eyes can sense. To us, the ultraviolet tessellated conversation between insect and flower is silence. To them, a clamorous beckoning call. Baby birds fill their mouths with infrared and we remain oblivious. They may grow to see the Earth's magnetic field while the swift satellite eyes of mantis shrimp rove arrays in less time than a blink. Meanwhile, the subterranean happenings of fossorial life remain uninterrupted by this new brightness. Circadian rhythms of blind creatures following their own score. Their eyes regress to sensorial beginnings, or their noses tactile eyes. They have escaped the rigid cycles of planets by burying themselves deep within one. 
Seeing is to grasp at hints from the world and paint visions in our mind, the hallucinations we assent to. Hello, my name is Owen. I am a technical production person, I suppose, um, a production manager, um, and a poet as of today. Um, this poem is uh, about photosynthesis and intellectual property, um, and it was written on the way to the Hearts Mountain. And my partner is a biologist, and I was thinking about how um, to link science with narrative, which is something that I found um, that is missing. So, looking at the lush green on the way to the Hearts Mountain made me think about photosynthesis because my partner was kind of preparing her classes. So I thought about how can you make photosynthesis accessible and fun. The sun issued an intellectual property disclaimer for her light to all the plants in the garden. The photons provided by the sunlight may not be synthesized, reproduced, or changed in any way without the written consent of the sun. Excitement of electrons is not guaranteed and may be interrupted by eclipses, clouds, or volcanic ash without prior warning. Any oxygen produced as a result of unauthorized photon interference will be the sole property of the sun and its associate, the moon and the other stars in the galaxy. Representing the plants in a class action against the sun, plant lawyer Rosie Dill, QC, made the following statements. Your Honor, the only crime committed here by my client is the crime of altruism. Producing oxygen from the water for the benefit of all living creatures is not a crime. Furthermore, we have here a clear case of photon monopoly by the sun and her associates who wish to deprive my client from the photosynthesis they are entitled to as plants in free garden. These photons have been in the public domain since emitted by the sun many light years ago. This is not just a case of depriving excitement from innocent electrons. It is an ugly display of greed and misuse of plant trust using the dark corners of intellectual property law. I think that the jury would agree that corruption eclipsed this sun today. Leading the defense team for the sun, Mr. Moulton Helium QC made the closing statements in the trial. Your Honor, we heard from the plans today and the jury will make up their mind. But the evidence is clear. Photons are a finite resource. Gas and metals are working around the clock and beyond in extreme conditions to provide life-essential heat and light. Without their hard work, a giant black hole will form and swallow the galaxy. In the best interests of plants and all other life forms, photons must remain strictly regulated and rationed. And the sun, given its long history and expertise, is best place to continue to play this vital role in our community. The verdict. Your Honor, the jury have considered the evidence and statements made by both parties. 
in light of the strong desire expressed by the plants for life to continue, there is a case for photons' exploitation to remain in the public realm. However, as the sun is the only source of light in this constellation, plants must adhere to guidelines and safety precautions issued by the sun from time to time and ensure that only electrons that are experiencing a disparity of being in lower states may be excited to assist with the process of photosynthesis. As we saw, overexcitements of electrons have resulted in uncontrollable chaos and the loss of many plants in the past. Therefore, the jury have deliberated that royalties from unused photons must continue to be made available through deflection and scattering of light in all directions so that visible color could continue to exist, not just for plants, but for all other living and inanimate objects equally. I'm Mark Hovenden. Um, I'm a lecturer in um, plant science and ecology in the School of Natural Sciences. Um, my poem is, is about the carbon cycle, but it's also about science, and it's about... It's about um, the history, basically, of, of how the carbon cycle sort of arose biologically, but also how, further on in the poem, because it is quite long, actually, um, it, it's about how we discovered the importance of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, because we didn't even know the carbon dioxide was a gas when we started out, you know, that it existed. So um, my poem, I wanted to be about, I wanted to be catchy and I wanted people to to identify with it straight away. So um, I chose uh, to to base my poem off something that is really quite um, well known and I would hope universally known amongst your um, audience. And it's a Dr Seuss type of poem. My poem is called One Carbon, Two Carbon, Green Carbon, Blue Carbon. So here it goes. I'll just read the first little bit. In the land, the sea and in the air... Carbon molecules are everywhere. One carbon, two carbon, green carbon, blue carbon, black carbon, blue carbon, old carbon, new carbon. This one has a little star. That one's from your little car. Say what a lot of seas there are. Yes, some are green and some are blue. Some are old and some are new. But are they just like one another? How do they cycle? Say, ask me, brother. Every day, from here, from there, CO2 is emitted everywhere. And then the poem goes on, and it goes on and tells the story about how carbon was first taken out of the atmosphere by plants and, and how plants actually evolved, and then it tells about, about being a scientist. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. And I know we've, we've spoken about this before and how you kind of like the idea of um, explaining complex scientific ideas in the form of poetry or in some other sort of more creative way. I remember in your lectures you used a lot of drawing and colour, do you think that explaining something in a way like a poem or in a more arts-based way helps people to understand it better? I think it, it helps some people definitely and because a lot of people learn differently. So some people learn, you know, from a traditional reading a textbook but other people, it, 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 I think it sticks in your head better if there's some little rhyme and some little mantra and, you know, you know from my classes that I get some people to... 
I get everyone to, to recite a few mantras as we go through. And actually, I put one of them in my poem as a laugh <laughs> to anyone who's been in one I of noticed. my lectures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a nod to um, being, being a bit of a dag, but interested in, other, in, in different types of things. But I think, you know, it, it, it just it helps. Everything, every little bit of variety in teaching helps. I mean, you know, some people use singing and, and that really helps as well. But, you know, I prefer a bit of a chant and a bit of a mantra, um, a, a bit, of, bit of poetry and, like you say, drawing. It's just I think it's a, you know, if you can mix it up, many different ways of learning um, helps people just to, to understand difficult concepts and sometimes, you know, very lengthy, detailed concepts. An Ode to My Father by Oliver Hovenden. And this was written about me. There once was a man who liked plants, who suffered a sad circumstance. He liked lecturing, botany, researching all things ecology, but spent most of his time writing grants. That's great. Thank you, Mark. Do you want to give us a bit of background about the poem? Um, so Oliver, my son, is a... Um, a published poet and uh, a Tasmanian champion um, um, slam poet, and went to the um, went to the nationals a few years ago and and competed in the national slam poetry competition and, and did very well, placed highly. He didn't win, much is to his disappointment, but he didn't really expect to, I suppose. Um, and so he he likes writing ditties and poems. He's written so very long ones. Obviously, this wasn't the one that he used at the slam poetry competition. But he knocks up a few uh, limericks now and then, and this is one he wrote a couple of years ago about me. I must have been whinging about having to write, <laughs> you know, grants to the Australian Research Council. Thanks so much, Mark, and thanks uh, so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's been a great delight, and thank you for inviting me. Of course. Hi, Kate. My name's John Garrard. So, The Inquiring Mind. When a famous professor asked, why is it so?, his students responded with, I don't know. The eyes of the scientist then began to glow. Their thirst for answers he knew would grow. Necessity is said to be the mother of invention, needs that demands our scientist's attention. Observation, experimentation, their intervention, bringing to the world a new convention. Scientific discovery, constant since the wheel, developing new ways to help us heal. Improving daily life and how we feel. Contributions they make clearly very real. From the auto to flight through to space exploration, with the speed of advancement in communication, on to the breakthrough achievements in medication, all thanks to science and our scientists' dedication. Never-ending challenges for all mankind, answers for which we still need to find. Keeping our scientists committed to the grind, their sole motivation is the inquiring mind. Is poetry something that you've always written? Not always. I was inspired by my mother. My mother passed away in 2018 and a couple of years before that in um, aged care she took a very bad turn and we thought that we were going to lose her at that time. Mm. And that night I was inspired to write a poem that um, was dedicated to her life. And of course she recovered from what she uh, was suffering at the time, and it was two years on, so the 
poem was held in waiting and then it was delivered at her funeral, which my sisters really quite enjoyed. And I was inspired by that to start writing other works and I've written um, poems about topical things um, covering our pandemic couple of years that we've had. I've got a, a series of poems on that, uh, some about relationships and, um, and others about uh, just topical things in life. So I've, I've just got inspired by that and I've, I've probably written maybe about 20 or so now. Wow. Um, yeah. That's so wonderful. I guess um, intense feelings can sort of inspire you to to want to capture a moment. Yeah. 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 I think that's something that poetry really does. And something something that I feel obliged to ask you as a member of a team, of a radio show that's composed of all women scientists, thank you so much for coming on the show and for coming all the way from Port Huon. Thank you, Kate. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. (laughs) Thank you. My name is Penny Jones and I'm a paleoecologist, archaeologist, aerobiologist and public health researcher, which means I have an academic identity crisis, but lots of interesting perspectives on fire and the history of the world. And that feeds into the poem that I'm going to read today, When Luttrewitter Was Born, which tells the story of some of Luttrewitter's pretty amazing geological history. And I wrote this in the context of a performance that I'm about to do in a couple of weeks for National Science Week called Luttrewitter in Deep Time, which will be a performance with a scientific narrative around Luttrewitter's geological history, loosely based on this poem but much more extended, with some fantastic musicians, Emily Shepherd and Yan, Yan Ng and Georgia Shine are going to be playing with me, as well as visual artist Amy Jackett is going to be creating some art live on the spot as well during the performance. So very excited about that and this poem is a bit of a spin-off of that event. So, on that note, I'll leap in. When Luttrewitter was born. Luttrewitter was born into a world without song, without forests, without fire, without flight. Luttrewitter was born when the moon held us closer, the world spun faster, and the days were just 18 hours long. Luttrewitter was born when the continents clung into the great wild land of Nuna, when the sky was orange and the land was bare and single-celled life ruled the seas. Luttrewitter was born into this strange ancient world, birthed gently into a wide, shallow sea that stretched from the shores of proto-Antarctica. Into this sea, sediments slowly, patiently fell to the seafloor, accreting, grain by grain by grain. Time transformed the sediments into rocks and they became the beginnings of our island. These rocks now stand at Rocky Cape, craggy ancient outposts bearing witness to our island's birth, the ripple marks still visible in the rocks. Over 1.4 billion years, these rocks have folded, metamorphosed, transformed, surviving compression, heat and mind-boggling pressure. But listen closely, and you can still hear the waves of Nuna, 1.4 billion years past. Hi, all right. So uh, my name is James Furlow. Um, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Tasmania, focusing on bushfires, bushfire ecology, and um, 
the management of fire danger around Hobart. Um, but I actually wrote a poem um, about my PhD when I was finishing it up. Um, and my PhD looked much more at the general ecology of Tasmanian forests and how fire plays a role in those forests. Um, yeah, so I wrote this poem, um, basically summarizing the results of my thesis. Um, I should say that I, uh, I take a little bit of artistic license with it, but um, I try to summarize the science behind my thesis in the format of a poem. My thesis found that when we think about bushfires in a lot of Tasmanian forests, the important thing about the thing that essentially decides, or the thing, the um, deciding factor in what a bushfire does isn't the big giant eucalypts, but it's the little trees in the understory that um, are very important. Um, and so this poem is called The Plight of the Little Trees. The inferno approaches. The little trees huddle en masse, terrified of the impending firestorm. Their skinny arms and unformed leaves interlocking, searching for comfort. Before them stand the grizzled veterans, maybe the last line of defense from a fiery death. These giants have seen many a fire, their charred hollows hosting many a generation of possum. These resilient giants stand ready, their thick bark protects legions of buds, ready to sprout into new leaves in case the tree burns. Even those giants without the protective bark are so colossal that they may survive this inferno. But even if they perish, these elders will accept their fate. Fire is life for the big gum trees. One generation consumed is another reborn. Their canopies hold endless stores of seed, serotonous, waiting for fire to release their new life. But these old forests have stopped many a fire. The yellow suits and red trucks call them natural fire breaks. Over the centuries, these giants have tended their own little garden, their vast canopies nurturing a lush rainforest, full of trees that have occupied this land for epochs. The little trees might take solace standing behind such defenders, but these are strange times. The air is hot, the land is dry. These little ones have no seeds in their canopy, no bark to protect their buds. Conflagration would mean the end of a lineage. People have come and argued, debating if these little trees will burn. But these trees have no lush garden underneath. Their skinny bodies and arms interlocking into a perfect fuel array, desiccated by the heat of the advancing flame. The inferno approaches. The little trees huddle, terrified behind their giant protectors. Their fate is unknown, their future uncertain. Can the little gums survive such a plight? Thanks so much, You're Jamie. Welcome. That's great. I think that everyone should write a poem summarising their PhD. <laughs> <laughs> what a great exercise in science communication. Hello, I'm Gabby and I'm doing a PhD in chemistry. Uh, Broken Flow, I wrote it like a year ago, actually, when we have a... Um, I was having a really bad time with my PhD 
and my supervisor used to do these meetings, these creative meetings, and he asked us to write something about what we were experiencing at that moment, and I was <laughs> actually really sad and miserable with my PhD at that moment, so I just wrote Broken Flow. So I'm going to read it now for you. Oh, my dear syringe pump, I just did everything wrong. I replaced you because you sink the particles I gave to you. I shouldn't leave you alone. I replaced you for a younger peristaltic pump. I believed it would give me a better flow. Just leaks and extra pulsing is what I got. Oh, my dear syringe pump, please forgive me for doing everything wrong. Going through 3D printed chip was not good for me. You showed me PDMS chip was the right way for my PhD. Oh, my dear syringe pump, forgive me for doing everything wrong. I wish I could go back to you, but it is too late for my project too. Your flow is not any more pumping for me. But peristaltic pump can help me. I am pump broken. My fluids do not match anymore. Oh, my dear syringe pump, forgive me for doing everything wrong. Thank you so much, Gabby. That was really great. I think that's really interesting that um, you wrote that poem because your supervisor said, write something about what you've been doing and how you're feeling. Is that, yes. is that something that your supervisor often does? Yes, we usually have meetings every two, two months with the whole group, with his group, and he will try to do more creative things or, or different things than just say pure science. Like He will do this kind of stuff. Sometimes we just... Uh, try to make a logo with our PhD topic or try to say our topic in a few lines. So he tried to encourage us to think in different ways. That's so and fantastic, yeah. bringing together, I mean, because that's, that's a big part of why I wanted to do this competition was bringing together the sciences and the arts because they're both really quite similar in a lot of ways and also very, very valuable to each other. So it's yes. really great to hear that your supervisor yeah. encourages that. Yeah, and he does it because it's a good way also for us to, how can I say, it's not exactly understand, but like try to explain to someone else is what he, he wants us to do sometimes as well. Like try to explain someone else in a, in a simple world what we are doing and try to communicate. So it's, it's really good. That's amazing. Good training in science communication. Yes, yeah. it's awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show, Gabby. Yeah, thanks to you for having me. If you liked this episode, you can find all our previous episodes at our website, that's science.org. And follow us on social media. I'd like to thank all the poets who submitted poems to the competition and made it possible, and to those who read their poems today. I'd also like to thank everyone who's helped with the competition, especially the judges, Jim, Barbara, Vicky and Louise, and the That Science team. I'd like to thank Grinner's Dive Bar in Hobart for agreeing to host the live event on the 16th of August, and I'd like to thank the places from which we've bought the prizes, Fuller's Bookshop, Red Parker and Keep Tazzy Wild. And to thank you all for listening. Until next time. Bye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. 
GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.